0: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck.
1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest. He's the author of a brand new book called Water for All. Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. And David Sedlek is uh, the vice chair for graduate studies, a professor of environmental engineering at UC Berkeley. And in addition to that, he was elected to the National Academy of Engineering back in 2016, which is one of the highest honors given to an engineer. And so we are are. In good hands this morning. And David, I want to welcome you to Go Green Radio and congratulate you on your new book. Um, it's it's quite a read. And I I really want to encourage our listeners to get out there and and pick up a copy, Water for All. I, I'd like to start, David, by asking you something that you wrote about in the preface, and I think this is really poignant. You say, anyone who aspires to be a change maker needs to understand the status quo that they hope to disrupt. And I think it's very important for us to underscore that. Help our listeners understand how they can accomplish that task, David. How can they understand the status quo of the water systems they
2: hope to change? Well, first of all, Jill, thanks for having me on the show. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you and maybe hearing from some of your listeners afterwards. I wrote this book in part because I realized that we're all well aware of many of the challenges facing our water systems and many of us do want to make a, a change happen. But my own experiences is that are that water systems are very complex and they involve large investments of money and they're regulated by a complex set of water rights and regulations and rules and maybe even just past practice and traditions and so if you want to make a change in one of these systems you really need to understand how it operates and and as an educator i see just how hard it is to wrap your arms around this large topic called water and water security and so i wrote the book to try to make it a little bit more apparent how water systems work and operate but maybe the first guide to thinking about uh, understanding the status quo is to recognize that water systems um, normally work well they're essentially miracles that bring safe affordable water into our lives and allow us to do many things and so the people and institutions responsible for their management are very hesitant to try new things because the uh, unintended consequences tend to uh, overwhelm the rewards that they might receive from making things a little bit better. And so that status quo is a very strong motivator of behavior. And the times when change comes about tend to be when people recognize that there's a crisis and that crisis cannot be addressed simply by optimizing the system or repairing some damage that's happened to it, that something new is needed. And that's why I orient the book around this idea of water crises and being prepared to respond to water crises, because that's really the time when the window opens up and this opportunity to change occurs and good ideas can be taken up by these inherently conservative institutions.
1: Well, and you mentioned that the book tries to help break down, you know this issue. it It is so big, and it is such a global issue. It's not just uh, you know, my local water system or a local water system overseas. Water systems throughout the the globe are experiencing hardships of many different types. And I like the way that you categorize, water crises for us, and I'd like to give you a chance to explain each one so that we can begin to understand that status quo a little bit better. You start with water for the wealthy. Help us understand that particular water crisis.
2: Okay, so what I've done in the book is I've created this uh, categorization of six water crises, and the first three are related to the water that comes into our homes, uh, maybe what we normally think of as tap water or drinking water, although it's used for so many other things aside from drinking. Um, when it comes to providing that household water supply for people living in wealthy countries, and by wealthy countries, I, I mean the majority of uh, North America, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, and the other parts of the world where uh, people are relatively affluent. When it comes to providing water security for those people, um, the good news is there's very small likelihood that they'll ever run out of water. Um, they might find that there's a water shortage and that water shortage might require them to change their behavior like like many of us in the west have experienced where we stop watering our lawns uh, and we're asked to adopt different forms of conservation but we can go to sleep at night confident that when we need drinking water when we want to take a shower when we want to flush the toilet the water will be there and that's not true of everyone in the world so when it comes to water for the wealthy um essentially we can buy our way out of our problems. And that buying our way out of the problems historically has meant building things like dams and reservoirs or installing groundwater wells. But increasingly, it's driving us towards new types of water supplies that maybe a generation ago were thought to be undrinkable. And here, I would include things like seawater desalination, wastewater recycling, uh, the use of salty brackish groundwater, which is quite plentiful around the world. All of these things um, are alternative sources of water that people in wealthy countries are starting to access uh, in response to water scarcity. And so it's a question of having the financial resources and the institutional prowess to pull off these uh, non-traditional water supplies.
1: hmm the next water crisis that you identify in the book is labeled water for the many. Now, how does that differ from water for the wealthy?
2: There are many people in the world who have access to piped water coming into their homes, uh, but they don't necessarily live among the uh, essentially billion wealthiest people or the golden billion. There may be about five or six billion people living around the world. And the majority of them live in cities and they live in cities where there's piped water of one kind or another. Now that water may not be safe to drink out of the tap. And in most of those countries, if you've ever lived there or visited one of them, people will maybe boil their water before drinking it, or they'll um, drink bottled water when they need to drink water, but they'll still use that water for uh, showering and cooking and many other purposes. In those countries, there's a uh, a water scarcity issue that is faced largely due to the fact that the utilities that provide that water have a hard time collecting enough revenue to afford the kinds of solutions that the wealthy can employ. And so when you have a water crisis in Sal Paulo, or uh, or in um, in in Cape Town, or in uh, uh, one of the big cities in India, for example, you don't necessarily have the financial resources to build a desalination plant or to uh, engage in a high tech water recycling process, and many of your customers already can't afford the water, and so you have a real challenge in providing. Uh, safe and affordable water, especially in in light of water scarcity. And in many low and middle income countries, cities are growing at incredibly fast rates and it's hard to keep up. For example, in the 19th century the population of London doubled every uh, 40 or 50 years, whereas today the largest cities in the world, many of which are in sub-Saharan Africa, are doubling in population every 15 years. And if you think about how long it takes to build water projects and to raise money to finance new types of uh, infrastructure, that's a blink of an eye. And so Mm -hmm. people find themselves on a treadmill where they're trying to uh, 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 finance new projects all the time. Mm -hmm.
1: The third water crisis that you identify is water for the unconnected. Talk to us about that water crisis.
2: The crisis of water for the unconnected is tied with the global sanitation crisis. So we often think about water and sanitation together. That is, there are uh, close to a billion people, about 800 million people around the world who don't have access to an improved water source. That means uh, a, a source of of safe water or water that's uh, close enough to them that they're not walking for hours a day to collect water. And many of those same people are also facing a sanitation crisis where they don't have A toilet in their home and that leads to the spread of waterborne disease. So these twin crises of water and sanitation really affect the economic prospects of uh, over a billion people on earth, uh, burdening them with uh, waterborne diseases and health problems and soaking up a lot of their time and resources in obtaining water uh, for household uses.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the fourth water crisis that you identify is water for good health. Help us understand that in more detail.
2: So implicit in the first three water crises is the idea that the water that people in rich or poor or unconnected situations, the water they access, is at least safe for them to drink. But there's a another crisis overlaying on top of those three types of water supplies, and that's that. The water that we drink might not be good for our health. And in many cases, it's hard to know when the tap water is unsafe to drink because uh, many of the contaminants that endanger our health are tasteless and odorless. So probably the largest one of those contaminants worldwide is arsenic. And maybe some of your listeners have heard about the arsenic crises that have hit places like Bangladesh and, and uh and India and Vietnam where uh, the drinking water has naturally high levels of arsenic as a result of the local geology. But arsenic crises also affect uh, the Midwest of the United States and the West and parts of Chile and other areas in South America and in Southeast Asia. So there's definitely like this issue of uh, naturally occurring or geogenic elements like arsenic and fluoride and uh, uranium. And then there are the chemicals that come from uh, our industries, in particular the organic chemicals that we either apply to the land as pesticides or make their way into our consumer products. And many of us in the past few years here in the United States have become acutely aware of this problem of PFAS, which Mm -hmm. stands for poly and perfluoroalkyl substances, or these chemicals that were used for firefighting foams at airports and oil refineries and are used in our uh, nonstick clothing and cookware. And that stuff tends to find its way into our drinking water and can endanger our health. And so there's a fourth crisis that really you you feel when you learn that your water may not be safe to drink.
1: Absolutely. Oh, we've got so much more to talk about, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
3: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
4: The Go Green Initiative is a nonprofit that works with K-12 school districts to accomplish two vital goals. To protect children's health from environmental toxins and to conserve natural resources for future generations. We believe no child's health should be harmed at school, so we work to ensure schools have safe, clean drinking water clean indoor air quality, and food supplies that are free from harmful chemicals. Schools can conserve tremendous amounts of natural resources that their students will need in the future, so we help schools conserve energy and water, as well as reduce waste. These actions also decrease schools' greenhouse gas emissions, which lead to climate change children in environmental justice and low food access communities are the most impacted by environmental challenges and the go green initiative directs the overwhelming majority of our time and resources to school districts in those communities to learn more and to support our mission visit www.gogreeninitiative.org
1: parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is David Sedlak, and he has a brand new book out called Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. And before the break, we were talking about the six different water crises that he identifies in the book to help us break down and categorize uh, what can otherwise seem just like an overwhelming, complex, global problem uh, over which we have so little control. But by breaking it down this way, we can understand the parts and pieces just a little bit better. So, David, that brings us to the fifth water crisis that you identify in the book, and that is water for food. Talk to us about that unique water crisis.
2: When we look at the different ways in which humans use water, The use of water for growing food is probably the main way that we affect the water cycle. In many places, our food is grown uh, under rain-fed conditions, where just the rain falling on the land is what is used to grow the food, and that's a, a use of water of sorts. But the one that's the real concern in terms of water crises is irrigated agriculture, and so some of the most productive agricultural land in the world, whether that's California's San Joaquin Valley or uh, the Indus Valley in uh, in India or uh, some of the uh, areas in the uh, eastern part of China, those are really where a lot of food is grown and it's grown with irrigation. It's estimated that as a result of continued population growth and the increasing wealth that we're seeing around the world are the world's farmers are going to have to grow about 70% more food than they do today by the year 2050. And they're going to have to do that on the same amount of land. There really isn't that much more farmland left in the world. And also on the same water resources, because we're probably not going to build a lot more dams and reservoirs for irrigated agriculture. And so that's a real challenge going forward of how we're going to continue to maintain the progress that we made during the Green Revolution. In fact, some people talk about the need for a second Green Revolution to make sure that we don't see global hunger in the coming years.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And and the, the final or sixth water crisis that you identify is water for ecosystems. And I'd love for you to take some time to explain that to our listeners.
2: So all of the creative ways that human humanity has come up with to control the water cycle, whether that's dams and reservoirs or groundwater aquifers or using the land in different ways, affects the flows of water. In fact, in many ways, humans are really responsible for running our rivers and determining the flows and the quality of water coming down those rivers. And so... Because we're so focused on feeding ourselves and running our industries and creating power uh, to fuel our homes and and providing our our drinking water, we're taking a lot of water out of the environment and that's causing the collapse of ecosystems. So maybe you've seen the pictures Mm -hmm. of the Aral Sea in Central Asia evaporating. Uh, That's just a dramatic example of what happens when water is diverted for human use and no longer comes into an ecosystem. So most of the world's rivers, the flows look nothing like they did before uh, population growth and development. And most of the world's coastal areas, the estuaries and coastal ocean areas that we rely upon uh, for much of our food supply um, are have been severely impacted by the waste that we've released to the environment. So it's a crisis of taking water out of the environment and using it for human uses, and a crisis of putting waste into the environment without properly treating it and having impacts on the downstream environment.
1: Mm-hmm. You and I live near a Great big example of that, the San Francisco Bay, I think there's something like there are 30 plus wastewater treatment facilities that, you know, the effluent goes into the bay and it's not all perfectly treated. And so that's just one of many, many examples of that. Um, You had a really fascinating chapter in the book. Um, called the, the Great Acceleration. And I'd love for you to talk to us about that concept and how the Great Acceleration has impacted our water systems.
2: So many people listening might be familiar with the concept of the Anthropocene, this idea that we've entered a new geologic era where humans control the cycle of elements on the planet. The Great Acceleration is a similar and linked idea. It's this idea that in the period immediately after World War II, there was economic development and technological uh, innovations that were unleashed on the world that led to a rapid growth in populations and a rapid increase in wealth. And if you were to plot Things like the number of people living in cities or the amount of water taken out of the environment or the amount of uh, energy produced by power plants. All of these different indicators of resource show an almost exponential increase in use uh, starting in about 1950. And if you break that down a little bit more, you'll see that first that increase in uh, population and resource use was concentrated in the the wealthy countries of North America and Western Europe. But later it shifted to the BRICS countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Um, As many people are aware, the population growth in those countries is starting to slow down and will probably peak in uh, the next couple of decades. But after them, uh, sub-Saharan Africa and South America and parts of Asia will also undergo similar kinds of growth. So we're at this point where we have every decade more and more water in the case of uh, thinking about water scarcity, more and more water the need to grow more and more food, uh, more and more people moving to cities. And that puts a tremendous demand on our water resources and has fueled a number of the water crises that we've seen in the past few decades.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, on Go Green Radio, we have talked about the water-energy nexus several times, but it's been a while. And so I'd love for you to help our listeners understand how the water associated with energy consumption in the past few decades has impacted our water systems and how we will need to manage this type of water use in the future.
2: What I find most fascinating about the water-energy nexus is that increasingly we have to think about it in the same breath as we think about this energy transition or shift to uh, electrification and renewable forms of power. In other words, the kinds of thermoelectric electricity generating sources that we've been reliant on for the past uh, 60 or 70 years, things like uh, burning coal, uh, burning natural gas, and, and in some places even burning oil, um, required great quantities of water. So when you burn something to make steam, to run turbines, to make electricity, you need as part of that cycle to cool the, 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 the steam back down and condense it so it can be used again, or you need to cool the pipes in the water system. And that consumes tremendous amounts of water. So this is true of any electricity production that requires fossil fuels. It's also true of nuclear power plants and that's why they tend to be located on the coast or uh, someplace with a, a large river or a very large lake nearby. As the climate warms and those water bodies become warmer and as less water flows down our rivers, many of those power plants are having trouble uh, meeting their cooling needs. And in fact, sometimes in the height of the summer, when there's this huge demand for electricity, those power plants might have to shut down. And that's a real problem. Um, I think the second piece of this, though, is that the energy transition that we're undergoing to things like uh, solar and wind has much less of a need for water and so that's good news that some of that water that's now used for uh, once through cooling in cooling plants will be returned to the environment. But some of the types of water that, uh, some of the types of energy that we're talking about as replacements, in particular hydrogen production, uh, have needs for large quantities of water uh, in their manufacturing and very high quality water. So there's a, a coming challenge in the water energy nexus related to that. And finally, uh, in the world, uh, especially in certain countries like, for example, uh, Brazil or uh, Switzerland or some of the Scandinavian countries, a significant fraction of the electricity is produced by hydroelectric power. Mm-hmm. And when you have uh, changes in precipitation patterns, you might not have enough water to run the hydroelectric power plants.
1: Mm-hmm. We even saw that in California Um you know, when the uh, Oroville Dam, uh, the headwaters of the state water project had to be shut down a couple of years ago, a couple summers ago for the first time in its history. Um, So that leads me to my next question. I want you to take some time with this, but how, we could spend a whole hour or more talking about this, but how is climate change impacting our water
2: resources? I think that, you know, if there were no climate change, water managers would still be struggling with uh, meeting water needs at, You know, throughout this great acceleration that we're still undergoing. But increasingly, we're seeing that climate change and the rapidity in which it's arriving is really placing large stress on our water resources. Um, I think there are several ways in which climate change is impacting and will continue to impact our water resources, uh, one of which is quite obvious to people living in the western United States, uh, and that's this idea of aridification. Mm -hmm. So we no longer talk in terms of severe droughts, we talk about the progress of aridification. And aridification is this idea that as the temperature becomes warmer, the air can hold more water, and when the air holds more water, that means that the snowfall and the rain that feeds our dams and reservoirs and replenishes our groundwater returns to the atmosphere rather than going where we want it to go. And so evaporation faster, and also with warmer temperatures and longer growing seasons, the grasses and shrubs and trees that are on the landscape will uh, undergo more evapotranspiration and they'll send more water back into the atmosphere. So you see not only uh, less water making it to reservoirs, but less moisture Mm -hmm. in the soil. And that really uh, dries out the land and turns it into a desert. So that's the first thing that's happening. The second thing that's you know what? I
1: wanna yeah, I wanna take a quick commercial break and then come back to this after we take a a quick break because this is just too important a topic um, to truncate. So we're gonna take a real quick commercial break and we'll be back with more in just a moment.
3: A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America T R N.
4: The Go Green Initiative is a nonprofit that works with K-12 school districts to accomplish two vital goals. To protect children's health from environmental toxins and to conserve natural resources for future generations. We believe no child's health should be harmed at school, so we work to ensure schools have safe, clean drinking water, clean indoor air quality, and food supplies that are free from harmful chemicals schools can conserve tremendous amounts of natural resources that their students will need in the future. So we help schools conserve energy and water as well as reduce waste. These actions also decrease schools greenhouse gas emissions which lead to climate change. Children in environmental justice and low food access communities are the most impacted by environmental challenges and the Go Green initiative directs the overwhelming majority of our time and resources to school districts in those communities. To learn more and to support our mission, visit www.gogreeninitiative.org.
2: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right.
0: Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back
1: to Go Green Radio, everybody. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Um, Our guest today is David Sedlak. He's got a great new book out called Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. And before we went to commercial break, um, I asked him how climate change is impacting our water resources and had to interrupt. And so, David, I want to give you a chance to finish that thought because this is really at the crux of what we're talking about today.
2: Sure. Thanks, Jill. Uh, So I I had already talked about the way in which aridification had uh, been or will in the future affect water resources. The second way in which climate change is likely to affect water resources or water availability is changes in global wind and water circulation patterns and their impacts on the weather. And so, what happens? Maybe if you remember uh, introduction to Earth science that you, mm-hmm. you saw in uh, in elementary school or middle school, or maybe saw in college, uh, the Earth is uh, has uh, the majority of its heat coming at the equator, and that leads to the rising of air, and that creates these circulation cells in the atmosphere. And the one at the equator or the two at the equator are called the Hadley cells. And they take water from the equator. It rises, and that's why it's wet in those tropical regions. And then it rises and it comes back down at uh, at these uh, north and southern latitudes that correspond to some of the world's great deserts. So if you think about the location of the Gobi Desert or the Sonora Desert or the, the, the Kalahari Desert, those are where that dry air comes back down to the land. and that band of deserts is expanding as the climate changes. And so the climate that we see, for example, in North Africa is moving up towards southern Europe and the Mediterranean countries. And in the southern hemisphere, the climate from the middle of Australia is moving further south and changing the the rain patterns and uh, and precipitation that, that they see in places like perth and uh, and Melbourne. And so we're already seeing those changes in circulation patterns uh, leading to uh, much more water scarcity in areas adjacent to deserts. Um, There are other ways in which climate change is likely to change water availability. I think the, the general theme here is that the wet places get wetter and the dry places get drier
3: hmm
1: You devoted a, an entire section of your book to using water more efficiently, and I'd like to have you talk to us about some of the strategies to reduce water use in wealthy, middle, and low-income
2: communities. So the first place that you look when you recognize that you're going to be facing water scarcity is to conservation, because like all resources, something that's inexpensive and plentiful won't be used very efficiently. And that's true in many places of water. At least it's true until uh, water scarcity arrives. And when water scarcity arrives, we have many different options available to us to save water. And so uh, I'll give you an example. In North America, uh, in cities like Los Angeles, the population over the last 30 years has grown by about 30 percent, but the total mm-hmm. amount of water that the city uses has remained flat. And that's because people have been installing more efficient appliances. And that's because we've established policies and laws that require uh manufacturers to make more efficient appliances. So no one has one of those old toilets that uh, when it flushes, it uses 40 or 50 liters of water. And no one uh, has that old fashioned top loading washing machine Mm -hmm. uh, anymore. They either have an efficient top loading washing machine or a front loader that uses uh, less than a quarter of the water that those older machines used to use. And you can go down the line and look at the Uh, household appliances and plumbing fixtures in our homes and our offices and our businesses, and they've become a lot more efficient uh, gradually over time. That same kind of efficiency can be employed in agriculture, and we've seen that uh, quite a bit in terms of uh, farmers figuring out how to grow more food with less water. So those two uh, places, uh, water used by our cities and water used by agriculture and also water used by industry, once scarcity comes, the, the least expensive and most effective approach is to turn to conservation and efficiency. And in most cases, it can reduce water use by 20 or 30 percent if it's not already being employed at its full potential. And so the question really with conservation is, how, do you, how much further can we go? And at what mm-hmm. point will people resist it? And at what point will it become too expensive to go any further?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You had a fascinating chapter on the Jevons um, paradox, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk to us about how that paradox applies to water for agricultural purposes,
2: well, this is an idea that was originally coined during the era of the uh, the steam engine, and and when people started observing that uh, that uh, as the steam engine became more efficient, uh, people started using it it and the related tools a lot more, and everyone expected that coal use would would go down as these things machines became more efficient, but actually it went up because people found more uses for them, and that's true of the water saving devices that are used in agriculture. So over the last 50 years, we've seen a tremendous transition in water scarce places from the old-fashioned way of applying water, which was flood irrigation, mm-hmm. to things like uh, sprinklers and micro drip or drip irrigation. And when that happens, you you know, your first thought is, wow, we're growing more food with less water. But when you look at the water available on a regional scale, you'll often see that there's been little or no improvement or even more water being used. And that's because as we figure out ways to use water more efficiently in agriculture, farmers being rational economic beings, Mm -hmm. they turn themselves to growing uh, more valuable crops. And those Mm -hmm. more valuable crops often uh, require more water to grow. And so we can get into a situation where we subsidize or encourage water efficiency in agriculture. And it turns out we end up back where we started in terms of our water resources. But in the process, we've uh, just shifted the types of food that we grow
1: mm-hmm. absolutely. Now, when it comes to expanding conventional water supplies, David, you know the the twentieth century it, we were we were building dams like it was our job. But what do you see? As the future of dams as we go
2: forward? So somewhere in the 1980s or so, people started to recognize that dams, despite their ability to create water supplies for regions that were very useful, had a number of unintended consequences related to the people whose land was flooded and the the ecosystems in which the dams were part of. And as a result, uh, dam building experienced a precipitous drop around the turn of the century to the point where today we grow a fra- we build a fraction of the dams that, that we built in the 20th century. And so really looking at the 21st century, the question is, what happens to the dams that we've already built? Um, when engineers build dams, they build them with the recognition that many of those dams will undergo a process of siltation and their storage capacity will shrink over time and eventually some of those dams will become obsolete. In addition, there are many places where we've started to recognize that those dams uh, may be having a bigger impact on the environment than Uh, than the benefit that they're delivering. And a great example of that is uh, in Northern California on the border with Oregon on the Klamath River, uh, a series of small hydroelectric dams that are being taken down uh, starting uh, last year. And those dams uh, are going to open up the river to the, the salmon, which is very important for the Yurok and the other tribes that rely upon that river for their historic uh, salmon fishing grounds. And so around the world, I think we'll see more questions about uh, whether dams need to come down and how we're going to manage dams as they reach the end of their lifetime.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: David, talk to us about both the opportunities and the challenges ahead for underground water storage.
2: So As we've come to recognize that we've reached this period that some people refer to as uh, peak dam, that is, you know, we've Mm -hmm. peaked out in terms of the amount of water that we're going to store in dams, and yet we need more water. The question is, where are we going to find that water? And the other source of water that historically humans have exploited is groundwater. And so groundwater is a great resource, but it only works if you take the water out of the ground uh, at a rate that's lower than the rate at which it's being replenished. And so a lot of efforts happening today to try to figure out how to intentionally recharge groundwater aquifers so that we could think about the underground water storage like our above ground reservoirs. They're a place where in wet years we can put the water and we can draw it out during dry years. And so the idea of flooding farm fields or taking water that falls uh, and is captured by dams and reservoirs and slowly releasing it to, uh, to uh, underground water supplies uh, through injection wells is really starting to capture people's attention. And I think in the future, we'll manage our groundwater supplies much more like the way we manage our ground or or surface water reservoirs. We'll pay attention to what goes in and what comes out and treat it almost like uh, a savings account where Mm -hmm. uh, it's the thing that helps us ride out the dry periods.
1: Absolutely. In about a minute before we go to the next commercial, I'd love for you to cover what we might be able to accomplish if cities did a better job of capturing rainwater.
2: Well, sometimes it's kind of crazy to live in a city and have it rain, and and someone tells you that you know there's going to be a, a water shortage the next year, and you say, mm-hmm. why are we letting this water run down the streets and go out into our rivers? Why can't we capture it and use it in some ways? And historically, the problem has always been that we get the water, rainwater out of our cities as quickly as possible so they don't flood. But increasingly, we're seeing cities around the world uh, encourage people to put in rainwater storage tanks and to develop systems to get the rainwater that falls in our cities underground. And we're seeing that in places like Los Angeles and Phoenix, where new construction has to have measures in it to capture the rainwater and either use it in the building where it rains or get it into the ground and be part of that underground water storage. So if we could capture the rain that fell on our cities, it would make a big difference in terms of providing a local water supply that could be accessed during periods of droughts.
1: That's, you know, that's a huge issue. And actually, we could spend quite a bit of time talking about how that would be accomplished. But but that chapter in your book was fascinating. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have much more with David Sedlak. Don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
4: The Go Green Initiative is a nonprofit that works with K-12 school districts to accomplish two vital goals. To protect children's health from environmental toxins and to conserve natural resources for future generations. We believe no child's health should be harmed at school, so we work to ensure schools have safe, clean drinking water, clean indoor air quality, and food supplies that are free from harmful chemicals schools can conserve tremendous amounts of natural resources that their students will need in the future so we help schools conserve energy and water as well as reduce waste these actions also decrease schools greenhouse gas emissions which lead to climate change children in environmental justice and low food access communities are the most impacted by environmental challenges and the go green initiative directs the overwhelming majority of our time and resources to school districts in those communities To learn more and to support our mission, visit www.gogreeninitiative.org.
3: Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast.
1: Hey, Alexa. Play
3: Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. We're talking with David Sedlak about his brand new book called Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. And I promise you, as much detail as you're hearing on this interview, we are only hitting the wave tops. You want to get a hold of this book and dive in even deeper. Um, David, there are three chapters in your book that cover the potential of treated sewage, and I'd like for you to tell us more about how we could replenish groundwater, refill reservoirs, and irrigate crops with treated sewage.
2: Well, Jill, just like the idea that rainwater falling in our cities is a missed opportunity to augment our water supply, the treated wastewater flowing out of our sewage treatment plants is also a missed opportunity in many cases. Uh, when when you think of a sewage treatment plant, you think about all the nasty stuff leaving your house, not just your toilet, but your shower water and your washing machine and the water in your kitchen, all that nasty stuff going into a sewer and going somewhere uh, into like the dark recesses of of the world. But mm-hmm. actually, modern sewage treatment plants are miraculous through a combination of uh, microbiology and and chemistry. they they create water that looks, clean and, uh, and and doesn't have any color to it and doesn't have any smell. And then you take that treated wastewater and you put it through reverse osmosis, the process we use to uh, desalinate seawater and a few more processes, you can make water that's indistinguishable from, uh, from bottled water uh, or tap water, uh, either chemically or, or physically indistinguishable. And that stuff can be used and is being used to replenish our drinking water supply for example here in California we have uh, millions of people who uh, whose wastewater goes directly into their water supply by by being pumped into their groundwater especially in Southern California so, mm-hmm. Replenishing groundwater with wastewater is common practice here in California. If you look at Berlin, for example, where the Germans, the West Germans were afraid that the East Germans were going to cut off their water supply, the, all of the sewage from uh, Berlin's treatment plants goes into the ground and replenishes the drinking water supply. And after the Berlin Wall fell, uh, the Germans were happy to keep that there because it was a reliable and safe water supply. So that's one way in which uh, uh, treated wastewater can can uh, augment our, our drinking water by way of groundwater. But there are places where The geology is wrong for using that treated wastewater to replenish uh, groundwater. And so we can take that treated wastewater and pipe it into our drinking water reservoirs. Um, That's the plan that San Diego, California is pursuing now. They're basically building treatment plants to send the treated wastewater into their reservoirs in the hills outside the city. And that's the way in which uh, a large section of Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., refills its reservoirs and the way in which uh, a significant fraction of Atlanta, Georgia's water supply is replenished. So you can take that uh, wastewater and put it through an advanced treatment process, and it's probably cleaner than a lot of the other water that's flowing into those reservoirs. And finally, this idea of irrigating crops with treated sewage, uh, this is a, a an ancient practice to take uh, uh, treated wastewater and use it for, uh, for growing crops. Um, certainly in uh, uh, thousands of years ago, people were using their waste for fertilizer, but mm-hmm. in the 20th century, especially in water stress places, uh, treated wastewater has been piped directly into fields and used to grow all kinds of crops. And that's true today. Uh, for example, here in California, if you go down to Monterey and see those wonderful strawberries and artichokes being uh, grown in the Salinas Valley, much of it is, is grown with treated wastewater.
1: Interesting, talk to us about how both coastal cities and inland cities could use desalinated seawater as part of their future water supplies.
2: So there's been a gradual revolution in terms of the technologies used for desalination. We've reached a point at which the energy required for desalination is a fraction of what it once was, and probably more importantly, the cost of desalination Is much, much lower than it used to be. In fact, in much of the world, it's the next least expensive source of water. And so we're seeing uh, not only uh, countries in the Middle East like Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates and and Israel turning towards desalination for their water supply, but we're seeing uh, Australia and Spain and increasingly the United States uh, building desalination plants. Here in California, the largest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere was built north of San Diego in Carlsbad uh, about seven years ago. And it provides reliable water supply, and it was cheaper to the people of uh, Carlsbad than the alternatives at the time. And so we're seeing a revolution in seawater desalination. And increasingly, we're seeing the same sorts of technologies being used to access what's called brackish groundwater. That is, underneath our freshwater aquifers, there's often a lens of salty water. And that salty water has historically been something that people didn't pay a lot of attention to because it couldn't be used for irrigation or as a drinking water supply. We're reaching a point where desalination has become cheap enough that a lot of cities are eyeing that as a future source of drinking water and are starting to to exploit it. David, the
1: final section of your book covers planning for change, and this is truly where the rubber meets the road. What are some of the top priorities that public policymakers need to consider in order to adequately plan for the future of our water systems?
2: So a lot of the changes that I've identified in the book, things like conservation and exploitation of these alternative water resources, they're going to happen because uh, when people face water scarcity, they're going to make investments and they're going to work to change the laws and regulations to make these things possible. The place where our public policymakers really need to be careful, in, in my mind, are looking out for those that lack the uh, political power and financial resources to undergo the water transitions that we are gonna see in the future. And specifically, I think about people who've historically been left out of infrastructure investments, and I also think of the environment. So here in California and some other places around the world, this idea of a human right to water is getting a lot of attention and is leading to a lot of investment. So when people need a water supply, We really have to pay attention to the fact that they might not be able to afford it. And it's the obligation of the government to help them uh, obtain a safe and adequate water supply if we think that the access to that water is an inherent human right that comes with being a citizen of a country. So that's one. And the other is all of these things that we're going to have to do to take care of our water supplies. We have a lot of advocates in the private sector and the municipal sector for water supply, water for industry and water for agriculture. But I think public policymakers have to be there to think about the water for the environment and to think about whether the environment itself has rights to water and has needs for water that merit uh, investments from the rest of society.
1: Well said, David. This is, again, just hitting the wave tops of all of the amazing information in your new book, Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. I want to thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio today. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.